The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. On Healthcare Insight, for those of you who have been listening over the many months that we've been on the air, uh, know that we don't just talk about healthcare. We talk about the health of the United States, domestic policy, foreign policy, and in particular, what I want to do today with this program is to go back to last week's interview with uh, Professor Dr. Milton Friedman. He is one of the great minds of our time in terms of understanding pure economics. He's a great mind in terms of connecting economics to policy. And I want to give a little bit more background this week than maybe we were able to get into last week, and that is to talk to um, uh, uh, Professor Friedman about how he became so involved in the economics world because he is um, he is just a leader in so many ways. Now, he passed away a number of years ago, so what I'm taking from are some of his interviews that he's had because I like to see how people's comments many years ago projected into the future. And so I want to ask him leading questions and then comment on his uh, responses and bring it into today's world. It's a great exercise for those of us who tend to forget the ideas and thoughts of the past and how they can be used in today's world to better understand today's world and to make changes. So I want to give a little bit more of a personal background for those of you who may not be familiar with um, uh, Milton Friedman. He wrote a great book, which I would encourage everybody to read, called Free to Choose. Uh, It really talks about how we have these great powers and capabilities and rights in the United States to choose what we want to do and not affect other people, but we have freedom of choice in so many different areas of our life, whether it's developing your own family, your goals, your aspirations, your income, your investments, your choice of foods, your choice of cars, your choice of travel, all those things he talks about, how those things need to be preserved and, and built upon. But I want to step back a second and talk about uh, his um, uh, getting into the economics world to begin with and his own uh, job path, if you will, for those out there who might be interested in, well, how does somebody this great and wonderful actually get into the right spot in his life? Now, I have a little bit of an ulterior motive here because those of you who may not know uh, me and my background, I came up through the uh, uh, consulting world, through the uh, insurance world, where I was a technician. I'm what's called an actuary. I'm a fellow of the Society of Actuaries. And curiously enough, I didn't know this till I started doing some of this research that um, Professor Friedman um, was considering and started to get into that area. And so I just wanted to uh, give a little bit of a background on, on, on Professor Friedman and his family, because I think it's fascinating to know how he developed some of his thoughts and concepts as he did. So let me ask the leading question here. Professor Friedman, how did you know or when did you know uh, that you were going to get into this world of economics? Well, it's hard to know. I don't think you ever have that sense. I think you. When I went off to college, uh, I knew I liked mathematics, and I was pretty good at mathematics. And I was an ignorant boy in a small town, uh, in a family that had never had anybody who had gone to college. 
I didn't know what you used mathematics for, and the only thing I could find out was that it was used in the insurance industry somehow. So I started to bone up on actuarial work, and I was going to become an actuary. And indeed, there is a thing called a fellows, actuarial fellows, that you have to pass a series of examinations for in order to become a member. And while I was an undergraduate, I took some of those examinations. They're about the hardest examinations in the world, as anybody will tell you in mathematics, and I failed some and passed some, but I passed some before. So that that was my original intention. I just wanted to be able to make a living. So the message for some of the listeners out there, if it's yourself or your child or your grandchild that you may be thinking about, is very good in mathematics. In fact, one of the professions that I can highly recommend from my own personal uh, career is the actuarial profession. And actuaries aren't just in insurance. They are in healthcare and pensions and government work and in individual companies. Basically, what an actuary does is assess risk. It uh, could be the risk of health care costs, could be the risk of death and the life insurance, which many people think of actuaries just on the life insurance side. It could be the uh, risk of retirement pensions being adequate enough to pay out the benefits when they need. Whatever it is, it's a risk an analysis. And I'm proud to say that I am in the Risk Management Hall of Fame for Georgia State University. But be that as it may, uh, there are career opportunities, and great minds can come from, not mine, of course, but great minds like Milton Friedman can come from the study of mathematics and finding a way to apply that for uh, good public purposes. So, Professor, take us from that goal that you had of becoming an actuary, and we know that you did not become an actuary, but you focused in on economics. How did that transition happen? Because certainly that's another career path that people listening to this program uh, might consider if they're good in mathematics. But then when I got into college, uh, I got uh, started uh, getting involved in economics as well as mathematics. And uh, it was also a propitious time. It was 19... I started college in 1928. And by 1930, when I was a sophomore... The economy was started to go into a decline by 1931 and two. It was, of course, a precipitous decline. And the, it became clear that an enormously important problem was what was going to happen to the economy, that that seemed the most dominant thing. But yet, even when I was a senior, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, partly because I didn't have any money and I needed to get some help if I was going to go anywhere. And I, so as it happened, I applied for and received graduate scholarships. In those days, these weren't fellowships. All this paid for was tuition. And I received two, one from Chicago and Economics, University of Chicago in Economics, and one from Brown University in Mathematics. (laughs) So I had to make up my mind at that point whether I was going to go in the direction of Mathematics or in the direction of Economics. And what... Professor, I always find it fascinating to find out how people got to where they ended up and the impact that they had, especially somebody like you who has had such an impact on this country and economic policies and and passage of legislation and all those things that you've had such a big influence on. Sometimes young people think that there's a straight path from wherever you start or whatever your education was uh, to wind up in that particular field. But most people in those college years can go multiple directions and sometimes just happenstance that something occurs that 
gets them moving in one direction or another. You can call it providence. You can call it sort of the Lord leading you in a certain direction uh, without your fully knowing about it. But how did that happen to you? How did you wind up on the uh, economic side instead of uh, pure mathematics as maybe a mathematics professor uh, at some university? Made up my mind for me, of course, was the state of the world. In 1932, with that choice before you, economics seemed most clearly and obviously the most important place where a young man should put his energies. Here was this a great paradox of millions of people out of work and millions of people hungry. And you couldn't get the people who needed the goods and services together with the people who were in a position to produce them. So that uh, when I really was faced up to that choice, I really didn't have any doubt. If I hadn't gotten a scholarship from Chicago, I would have had to go to Brown because I couldn't afford, I didn't believe that I could afford to, to, uh, I had worked my way through college. I had had a tuition scholarship to Rutgers University where I went to undergraduate. But I had earned all the rest of my expenses and indeed I graduated with a small kitty, but not enough to have paid even one quarter, a year's tuition, let alone several years. So I had to go where I could get the help. And fortunately, I got a scholarship at Chicago thanks to one of my teachers at Rutgers who had been a University of Chicago student and who uh, was close to some of the faculty people there. Well, again, I always find it fascinating to find out how people got from where they were as a youth to getting into a career where they could have such a big impact and utilize their talents. I'm not sure that any place else in the world allows that freedom of choice of where you go, but you're influenced by your environment. In this particular case, I take a couple of lessons out of uh, your experience that may apply to anybody listening to this program or for the children or, again, the grandchildren of somebody listening to this program. That is, there is no straight line. Sometimes outside influences will tell you which door to open up and which door to close, and you can call that um, uh, God giving some uh, some direction, or you can just say it's an accident, but I tend to think these things are sort of what I call God winks moments. Uh, the scholarship money to go there uh, to Chicago uh, was clearly uh, a driving force, but maybe most importantly, it was the economic times. You were in a depression period and you answered the call to try to deal with the problems that many of us are facing today. You say back in the Depression, you had people who needed work, weren't making enough money, and the goods weren't available, and you were just trying to connect people to the goods so that we could create a robust economy, and what was happening there on a macro scale with the Federal Reserve or government policies or politics in general interfering with the robust development of a strong economy. That's what we're seeing today. That's why I wanted to present more about you and your policies over these two weeks, because it's so critical that people understand that this stuff just doesn't happen out of the blue. It's not unrelated to things that uh, we want to see done by the politicians that we vote and elect into office, that the politicians vote their direction, their whether it's presidential decrees or orders or it's passage of laws by by the Congress, uh, how you vote out there is so critical. And we're coming into a period of time in 2022 that people are up for elections. So how you want your country run is going to depend upon how you vote out there. And so that's what I want people to get out of this session. 
So let's wrap up this session a little bit with telling us about your family, your support system, your mother and father. How did they play into your education and your uh, direction of your career? Uh, my father died when I was uh, uh, 13 years old. Uh, so my mother was a very intelligent, able woman. But uh, she was not an intellectual. My father was not an intellectual. Neither one of them had ever gone. Well, as a factor, I doubt that either one of them had ever gone through anything beyond elementary. They knew how to read and write. But uh, they were in small private business. My, my, we had a small retail store at the time that my mother ran. and That was a source of the livelihood. Uh, they never in their whole lives had an income that came anywhere close to the poverty level. And yet, they never regarded themselves as poor. Because they were self-sufficient. And none of us would have said we were poor. Well, Professor, let me stop you there because we're up against a hard break for this uh, segment of our hour. And um, i got to tell you, I'm finding it more and more fascinating to learn about you and your family because it certainly reflects on my uh, youth and my family growing up in the coal mines of northeast Pennsylvania and not having much. Uh, neither of my parents uh, graduated uh uh, college, uh, they went to high school, could read and write and were hardworking and came through the depression era as well and encouraged me to have the education to get ahead and to get to the next level of economic security and success in life, however you want to measure that. So I very much appreciate you sharing that. I want you to come back in the next segment and give us a little bit more of your background and more of your economic theory. Uh, please stay with us after this commercial break. We'll be right back. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the segment of America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And today... We are continuing with more in-depth understanding of one of the great minds in America over the last uh, 70, 80 years, and that is Professor Milton Friedman. And Professor Friedman has been giving us over the last week and this week some insights to himself, how he got to be such a noted economist. He's a Nobel Prize winner in economics. He's had enormous influence in this country with his economic theories around monetary policy and his influence on politicians and guiding them to do the right things for the American people. He grew up during the Depression era, and we've been talking to him about his family's influence because 
His story is the story of many of the listeners out there, many of the uh, family dynamics that he experienced as a youth and giving him some support or guidance or direction is so much the story of other people that have lived through the Depression years. And certainly is my story as well. In the last segment, Professor Friedman talked about his father passing away when he was age 14. Mine passed away when I was about age 19, and that had a big influence on what I needed to do and where I needed to go. But more importantly, my mother and father, while my father was alive, made it very clear that they did not go to college. They had wanted to have a better education, but the dynamics of the Depression and World War II were such that they weren't able to pursue that particular dream for themselves. But they had the goal that their children would get ahead. And it was very clear to me as a youth that my parents were sacrificing an awful lot to be absolutely sure and to be saving money and encouraging each of their children to get a better education. They saw that as the way out of the life that they had, which was not a bad life. It just was not a life that gave them the freedom to pursue all the activities they wanted, whether it was uh, travel or a better car or a better house. They managed, and we always thought growing up that we were middle class, but back then, most people considered themselves middle class, whether today you could give more uh, data tech, technical analysis and say, well, they're, they're, un, they're in the poverty level or they're lower middle class or upper middle class, whatever. We didn't think in those terms uh, many years ago. We just, everybody was middle class and was a middle class that was booming in the United States. And so I want to go back to Professor Freeman and, and have him give his story about his parents' support uh, for his future and how parents back then, unlike in many cases, parents today don't give that kind of hope to their children. Uh, we need to get back to that. And that's why I think it's so important that uh, the audience here listen to the background and the opportunities that uh, Professor Friedman took advantage of and the kind of parental support uh, as an example of what we really need to have in today's world. So, Professor Friedman, tell us a little bit more about your family and uh, how they were your support as a youth coming up and what their dreams and goals and aspirations were for you in your life. Remember, I was a first-generation American, and I think you will find this same experience in many generations. I know it's the same experience my wife and her family, her peers had. Uh, their parents were enormously anxious for them to be educated and schooled. There's no doubt about that. Uh, my parents, uh, insofar as they could, would have sacrificed anything to make it possible for me to go to college. As I say, my parents, my mother never had a, uh, anything more than a very low income. My, an older sister of mine worked for the Western Union Telegraph Company, and she was employed throughout the Depression so that they had a steady source of income, and she was unmarried and lived at home and contributed to the family. But the only year I was really in trouble was my first year of graduate study at uh, Chicago. And my family, I borrowed money from my parents, from my mother and my sister that I was later able to repay, $100 or something like that. It's not a great amount. Well, Professor Friedman, what I take out of this segment of your background is family. Family should come first. Your mother or father are sacrificing for you to get the education 
Your siblings will help out where they can and where they're able to. And you're not afraid to sort of work together as a unit so that your entire family structure is improved through education. If it takes a little bit of help and support for family members, then charity starts at home. Make sure that that happens so that the people who you're supporting within your family can get ahead to be able to help others. And always keep in mind that we live and grow on the shoulders of those who came before us. So very important for our audience listening out there to be able to help others, especially starting with your own family. Be sure that the good qualities and characteristics are being supported and help people to help themselves because there are some great kids out there who just need a little bit of extra help. They don't have to feel entitled, uh, but they ought to feel grateful when that occurs. But your story is also one of immigrants coming to the United States, first generation or or newly uh, uh, immigrants that are to this country. Can you give us an example of another great economist? I think you've talked before about Arthur Burns, who was a, another great economic mind uh, that came to this country. Give us a little bit of the background, because I know you, the two of you were very close at times. Arthur Burns the same. Arthur Burns came over to the United States at the age of 10 or 12. I think 12. He came from Austria. And by the time he was 23, he had gone through, not speaking a word of English, of course, by the time he was about 23, he had gone through uh, elementary school, high school, and graduated from college and a member of Phi Beta Kappa and so on. And the same thing with my brother-in-law, Aaron. He came about the age of 12, not speaking a word of English, and in 10 years... He was a graduate of Yale. And uh, without any, his mother would occasionally send him five or ten dollars because that's all she could scrape up. But the rest of it he had to earn on his own. And so did I. So, Professor Friedman, let's take that personal experience that you had and many others, immigrants come to this country first, second generation, people who really didn't have much of an education that became parents and helped their children to get ahead to achieve the American dream. Let's bring that home to today's world and the type of financing of colleges through government programs, through things that people get used to having free money available. So they go into debt, they borrow money, whether it's from the government or from their credit cards or some private company. And we now have in this country, I think it's somewhere like $1.6, $1.8 trillion in debt. And this generation in the United States is under the thumb of that debt, having to pay interest on it, let alone pay the principal back to get ahead in life, to be able to afford a family and a house and a car and a decent living, because in many cases, their education is not supporting the kind of lifestyle and income that would pay back the loans that they took during the college years. So give us a little bit of perspective of your ideas of what's happening in today's world, because I think it's very relevant uh, to the experience you had, and quite honestly, the experience that I had of self-funding my college education. This idea that's present now, that somehow or other it is necessary to have great government subsidies to enable people to go to college, is not true. At no time, and our own experiences show it, has it been impossible for people who had the requisite desire and ambition, were willing to work hard, it was... And no time was it impossible for him to get through college. Scholarships for tuition, for paying the cost, those all are very helpful and I think are very desirable. But I think our present arrangements 
under which we subsidize so extensively uh, people on an across-the-board basis without a question of merit or anything or need are very undesirable. Boy, anybody listening to this program today knows this college debt burden that's hanging over our youth is making them restless, is making them think big government is always going to be the answer because you have big government giving them money, and now you've got President Biden saying he's going to try to wipe out the debt without any congressional action, just a stroke of the pen as if he is a dictator. And so our new generation, our current generation, is thinking that government can solve the problems even if they make mistakes of taking the wrong kind of an education instead of getting a job or going to a trade school that they just know that they're supposed to go to college, but they take useless uh, majors that don't prepare them for a good economic future, and they wind up in enormous amount of debt, which prevents them from moving on to a happy life. So college debt, as Professor Friedman just talked about, big government getting involved in college debt is a terrible problem, terrible situation, but when he made these statements, he didn't know how big and ugly the college debt would be in the 2020s as we sit here today. So let's talk a little bit more about his background because it's so fascinating how it can relate to today, even though he's talking uh, decades ago. So some of you might be wondering about, now that you understand his his economic background, his family background, um, what kind of books would he read? He was obviously a very voracious reader. He had these natural talents, these new intellectual skills that he had that even somebody who was first generation uh, Jew coming here, the family supported education, even if they didn't know exactly what it was going to be, but that he needed to get an education and take advantage of it. So tell us a little bit about the kind of books you read, not only for your educational purposes, but that led you into this world of mathematics and economics. Every kind. Uh, Fiction. Mostly fiction, of course. That's what I think young people, young kids, I shouldn't say young people, children, uh, you know, between 6 and 16, are inclined to read mostly as fiction. And I read all kinds of fiction. I had a small library, the Railway Public Library, and I exhausted whatever they had on their shelves. Jack London wrote a marvelous book called The Scarlet Plague, which I must say, for some reason, <laughs> is the one book I remember best out of that period. It had to do with a, The Scarlet Plague as a novel, and has to do with the... Uh, uh, there's a illness, a scarlet plague, that comes to the country. People die out all over the world, all over the United States, except for small, isolated colonies that are left. Uh, uh, advanced civilization collapses, the buildings in New York are empty, and so on. And here's a boy who's suddenly growing up, and he came and comes in in the wilderness of California, as it happens, and he stumbles over a railroad track, which has by now been almost buried in the dirt. And he asks his grandfather or his father about that, and then you hear the story about this plague that wiped out mankind and how in isolated places they are gradually coming back. I don't know why that one stuck in my mind so much, but it did. Well, I think it's clear the impact that book had on you throughout your life because you're growing up in later years, you're spending time in the Depression years where it looks like the world is going to collapse, that there has to be a solution, there has to be a way to sort of revive the world 
as you saw in, in the book that you were reading as a child and its impact on you and that your life's journey was to help to create the solutions to bring people back, to bring life back to the United States during the Depression years. So it seems to be pretty clear. Now, let's add another thing to this biographical analysis that we're going through today, and that is tell us a little bit more about any particular events or activities in your life that affected you as dramatically as some of the books uh, that you've read and the example that you just gave on the book. But before we get into that, let's take another quick break in this fascinating discussion and background of Professor Milton Friedman. Let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Uh, Stay with us for a fascinating description in the next segment. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hey, folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember, folks, I'm not angry. I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the next segment here on America's Web Radio, where we're talking with and to uh, Milton Friedman from some of his past presentations, and we're analyzing and structuring the background of this brilliant man who uh, won the Nobel Prize for Economics and has more of an impact on our daily lives than most people uh, really would know or understand. But for those of you in the audience interested in how a creative, brilliant mind can affect the world, can affect the country, can affect your pocketbook and your family. I encourage you to continue to listen to this. We've been talking to uh, Professor Friedman around his family, his education, uh, the books he reads. And I want to go back to the question in the last segment where we left it off. What are some of the experiences or events that might have happened in your life, Professor, that had this kind of an influence on you to move in the direction of taking advantage of your natural economic skills, your intellect, and your interest in economics during the period of time that you lived. Tell us about anything that had that kind of an impactful um, uh, occurrence on your life. One of them was an early conflict over religious beliefs, internally, not externally. My parents were Orthodox Jews, but they weren't. Uh, fanatic about it, they weren't. Uh, they observed the uh, dietary laws and so on, but there was nothing fanatic about it, they weren't. But I was. And in my early years, I was fanatic about it. Um, if, the, if this was right, if this was a religion, you should do what you had to do. And so I was uh, um, scrupulous uh, at about the age of 11 or 12. But then Somehow or other, and I don't know where, I began to question it. And when I finally decided that there was no fundamental basis for it, that all of this was mostly myth and prejudice, then 
I went the other way, and my wife will tell you that I became fanatically anti-religious. So that was one set of defining events, which certainly had a very great impact on me. Well, Professor, I think you've walked in that case of questioning your religion, your faith, um, where everybody walks in their teen years, and that's good, I think, uh, to question and not just carry forward whatever your parents' beliefs were. Um, certainly that gives you a foundation, but um, the idea of questioning uh, the existence of God, the existence of your faith, why you have that, I think is very natural, and anybody with any sort of brains will ultimately uh, do that. Um, let me change gears a little bit here and ask you more about your interest in mathematics and ultimately economics. What was the uh, the teacher or the experience that you might have had along the way that kind of opened your eyes and gave you this wonder and excitement about mathematics? I had a uh, teacher in high school who uh, was really... Somehow, I think he taught government or political science, something like that, whatever you call it in high school. But he also taught Euclidean geometry, plain geometry, simply because he liked it as such a beautiful intellectual discipline. And I took uh, his course, and one point or another, he got rhapsodizing about the beauty of geometry, and he quoted the last lines of Keats's Ode to a Grotian Urn. Truth is beauty, beauty is truth. That is all you know and all you need to know. And those two lines stuck me with me. I was about probably 12 or 13 at the time. And they have stuck with me ever since because uh, they so much reflected the sort of feeling I had about the geometry as well and about mathematics in general. That... Its appeal is one of beauty, kind of an intellectual purity and beauty. Uh, now, that was just, I'm sure that that was what drove me in the direction of thinking I wanted to make mathemat- mathematics my, uh, my lifetime work. Professor Friedman, what a great story. And a lesson for all of us that we may only say a few words to a young person or uh, somebody that we're mentoring or somebody that we come across, a friend, a family, a grandchild, a, a child. And those few words that you may not even fully realize the impact that they have or something that another person uh, will remember for the rest of their lives and will carry forward and has an effect on their career, on their ideas, on their faith, on their interests, on their hobbies. It's such a great lesson to learn from what you uh, have just told in that story itself. But let me try to, again, change the direction of this conversation a little bit more, because I think the purity and the honesty of mathematics, uh, there's a right and a wrong. There's There's no judgment involved in it, but it creates an opportunity to present truth to the solution, to the problem, to the uh, proof of um, of the hypothesis. How did you take that kind of a concept from mathematics and bring it into your economic world and the world of having an influence on governmental policy and the way you viewed government? I be- hope and I believe I've tried to examine what their actual effects have been as opposed to what their intentions were. That is to say, I think that the great problem in so many of these areas is to distinguish between rhetoric and substance. There's, as you very well know, 
There's a famous saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And that's the case. Almost all government programs are started with good intentions. But when you look at what they actually achieve, there's a general rule. Almost every such program has results that are the opposite of the intentions of the well-meaning people who originally backed it. I say well-meaning because in every such case, there are people who are doing it because they believe it would be good for the country. Unless you have some people like that, it's hard to get anything through. On the other hand, it's also hard to get through unless there's a core of people who can see how they personally can benefit from having that policy put into effect. And in some cases, the results, not in all, but in some cases, the results do coincide with their expectations. But they're almost always the opposite of the intentions of the well-meaning people. Well, Professor, I really wish that more people would take that statement to heart, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, because there is a movement in this country that goes on today that thinks that big government is going to help people it's going to help the minorities. It's going to help the underprivileged. It's going to help the underserved. But the reality is these programs have kept people down for the 60, 70 years since uh, President Johnson's uh, Great Society programs. And it has prevented many people from rising up in the ranks and taking advantage of uh, the um, American dream of taking advantage of educational opportunities. Probably the worst thing in this country is the fact that we have degraded education so much in the minority community that it makes it very difficult for them to get ahead and qualify for the jobs that they would like and and have that intellectual curiosity satisfied with good teachers and good programs. So I know some would say that's a great skepticism that you might have. Can you uh, sort of address the idea that as an economist, um, that you're not just skeptical, but that you're a healthy skeptic? in the way you approach issues from an economic standpoint? No, I don't believe that's a general skepticism about everything. I think that's rather, uh, you know, the old American saying, I'm from Missouri, show me. I don't want to go ahead on promises. You want to look at what actually happens. And so I believe that the attitude there has been a combination of the uh, real training I, and, and I got in the field of economics the attitude toward economics as concerned with real problems and as a machine, uh, as a, one of the great economists said, machinery, as a bit of machinery with which to examine the real effects of real policies on the one hand and uh, the desire to see what actually happened as opposed to what people say will happen. You know, Professor, over my experience of my many years, I've found that many successful people, in fact, most successful people in my experience, have mentors or great teachers that help them along the way. Can you give us uh, some examples of the teachers, the mentors that you've had that kind of guided you along the way and were so influential in your life? Once I went on to college, there were some other people who had some very great and real influence on me. During my undergraduate college people, uh, there are two people who stick out who unquestionably had a major influence on them. One of them was Arthur Burns, who later on became the uh, 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 
the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board and still later ambassador to Germany and was an influence in the political area. And I would say one of the most uh, most valuable courses I ever took in my life was a course I had with Arthur. I call him Arthur because he later became a a very close friend, personal friend of mine. And, And as I said, outside of my parents and my wife, there's nobody else who had as much influence on my life as Arthur Burns did. So, Professor, what made that class so special? Why did you learn so much from this obviously brilliant professor who was at the early part of his career writing a dissertation um, while he was teaching. Uh, what made that class special? Can you describe that? In which there were only two students. And, me. Uh, and this course consisted, I don't know what it was supposed to be, but it consisted in going over his the draft of his doctoral dissertation sentence by sentence and uh, trying to find mistakes in it and analyze it and improve it and criticize it. And as I say, it was, I cannot think, I can think of but one other course in my life that has as much value to me as that course because it it, uh, supplied standards of workmanship, the level of accuracy you want to aim at, the openness to criticism. Were there any other uh, great influencers or impactful teachers or mentors in your life, can you tell us about uh, one more person? So the other person there who had an enormous influence on me was uh, the man I mentioned who really was responsible for my going to Chicago, Homer Jones. Homer Jones was at the time uh, a graduate student at uh, Chicago who, however, had taken a job as an instructor at Rutgers because he needed the money and he had been working there for a couple of years. <laughs> he had very He had a very real influence on me. Uh, because of his understanding of economic analysis and also because of his qualities as a teacher and as a human being. He was a great human being. And Homer had been a, was something of a disciple of or a student of Henry uh, Frank Knight at the University of Chicago, Frank Heinemann Knight, Frank H. Knight. And through Knight, he persuaded Chicago to offer me a scholarship, a tuition scholarship, and that's how I happened to go to the University of Chicago. So those two people unquestionably had the greatest influence. I mean, now there are other people who, obviously other other uh, uh, professors, other teachers and so on, who had an influence on me, but um, those two stand out. Well, the lesson I take away from this whole background and experience that led you to the platform and your influence on national policy is the idea of connecting to mentors, people who are smart and can uh, give you detailed instructions and, and principles of how to do your job, and also men of character, people who you respect as individuals, as human beings, before you even respect them as as teachers or mentors or economists. So. Let's take a quick break again. We're going to come back and do a final session with Professor Dr. Milton Friedman. Stay with us, please. If you love classic cars, you're going to want to listen to The Classic Car Show with Tom Cox and Richard Lentinello on America's Web Radio. Live every Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern at americaswebradio.com or on demand on your favorite podcast app. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your healthcare freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Veteran-owned, America's Web Radio would like to thank all of our incredible patrons. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. If you are not already a patron, you can help us continue to produce some of the most informative and entertaining shows on the Internet by becoming a patron. Patrons of America's Web Radio are the first to receive information about new shows and links to the latest podcast episodes. Join now and receive a free gift while supplies last. For more information and to join our family, please visit www.patreon.com slash America's Web Radio. If you have questions, contact us at gm at americaswebradio.com. And as always, thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the americasbroadcastnetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio in our final session today on... Uh, Healthcare Insight. What we're talking about today is we are going back and looking at the background and history and upbringing and development of Milton Friedman, one of the great conservative economics minds this, this world has seen. He has so much influence over what's going on today, and he certainly did many, many moons ago, setting the tone and the structure and the principles for good monetary policy. Sometimes we move away from that, which Quite honestly, in the 2020s now, we've moved away from his kind of economic theory as to how to keep prices stable. We've expanded the monetary supply dramatically, even following the needs of COVID. And now we've got a problem with recession on the horizon. And it would all be predictable under his theories and philosophy of monetary policy, which should just be increasing at a steady rate enough to absorb the changes in the growth in the economy and the population. So what we're looking at this week is not so much the policies, but what made the man? What did he do growing up? How was he different? Well, we've learned already today that he grew up in very humbly, humble beginnings with parents that weren't particularly educated but were hardworking. He was very um, adept at mathematics he found some people who could be his mentors as he went through school, some people who would help him along to achieve the optimum that he could with his intellect and his curiosity and his mathematical skills. And the times that he was living in pushed him more towards economics than pure mathematics because of the depression years that was going on. So we've heard about his teachers We've heard about his mentors. We've heard about the books. We've heard about some of the struggles he's gone through. And these are stories of every human. We all have our stories about how we got where we are. And it's interesting to me, and I hope it's been interesting to our audience, to see how great minds sort of step forward from the anonymity of the general population, people who might have otherwise been forgotten if they weren't sort of encouraged along the way, weren't sort of pushed and mentored and coached and teached along the way and had opportunities, whether it's by luck or by God's grace, that they become well-known and their thoughts and policies uh, become ingrained in our government so that it can affect 
everybody's lives, the common man's lives, the middle America, anybody wanting to uh, achieve the American dream through hard work. His policies have uh, encouraged that to a great degree. So now what I want to ask uh, Dr. Freeman is, how did he get to his level of success? After all that background he's already given us, how did he achieve the level of success that he has had? People grossly underestimate the role of luck and chance in people's lives. Uh, let me illustrate it. Uh, if the United States in the 1880s and 1890s had had the kind of laws it has now, my parents would never have been able to come to the United States. They would not have gotten visas. They would not have gotten in there. If they had met and gotten married, they would have been uh, in where they came from, an area of, well, at the, at the, in their lifetime, it was, or when they left it, it was Hungary, Austro-Hungary. Uh, it was Carpoipetho-Ruthenia. It later was uh, at the tail end, tail eastern end of the in-between wars, Czechoslovakia, and it's currently a province of Russia. So that if, uh, if they had been unable to come to the United States, if they had stayed there and gotten married there and I was born and all that, I'd now be a citizen of Russia. Pure chance. I had nothing to do with it. One point after another, pure chance. If Homer Jones happened, hadn't happened to be teaching at, Chicago, at Rutgers at the time I went there, I never would have had the ability, had the opportunity to go to, uh, go to, uh, uh, Chicago. I would certainly not have become an economist. I would probably have become an applied mathematician. I don't know what I would have done in that area. And so it goes. There are pure chance plays an enormous role in the lives of all of us. Dr. Friedman, I know you talked earlier about your struggle with the uh, Jewish faith and your beliefs, but let me give you my take on what you just described. I call it a God winks moment. In other words, it doesn't just happen by pure chance that there is a a method to the madness and a madness to the method, if you will, that God wanted you and your family and the life that you're living now and the influence that you have now, um, he wanted that to happen. And so those events that you talked about uh, are typical of what I call God winks moments where there are things at the time seem insignificant. Um, maybe it's how you met your wife, how you went to school, how you ran across these business people and teachers that you did that helped you along your way, that's God kind of pushing you in a certain direction. And that invisible hand that you talk about in economics, the invisible hand of Adam Smith, well, there's an invisible hand of God that's uh, guiding and directing you as well. So I think that's what's been happening to the whole country. I think this country itself is um, is God-given with its uh, resources and its liberties and the wise people who existed as our founding fathers to establish this whole country where you could have such an influence. So I don't think it's pure chance, but I know there are some other aspects as well. Don't you agree uh, to a person's character and uh, interest and drive and all those sorts of things? So give me a little bit more than just pure chance. I don't mean to say that everything is due to chance. Certainly it is not. Certainly Character matters, certainly whether people are willing to work hard, certainly pure IQ matters. And that's a matter of chance too. Pure random chance of how, which half of which parents' genes you happen to get. So that, uh, 
character, intelligence, and so on matter. But I think accident matters an enormous amount. Whether people happen to be in the right place at the right time, whether people happen to get hit by an automobile, you know, there are all sorts of things. I think the most important single thing on people's success is whether they're lucky enough to be able to earn their living in doing something that if they could afford to, they would do without any pay. I think the most unlucky people in the world are those who have to learn their, have to earn their living by doing something in which they are not willing, they would not voluntarily work overtime. Now, millions of people have to do that. They are the most unluckiest people. And the luckiest people are people like myself who by accident are able to earn their living by doing something that if they could afford to, they would do without getting paid. If you don't really want to work overtime at a job, you shouldn't have that job. Well, Professor, what a great testament to the joy of work, not the drudgery of work. And you've outlined it appropriately. Find things that you're good at, that you enjoy. I kind of describe it this way, especially for people who are retiring from one job, maybe later in life, and they feel like they're being cast off. They don't know what to do. I say, what is it that will get you up in the morning when you don't otherwise have to? If you do find that, that's your passion. So I think if you can do that your whole life, that people are very fortunate. And that's a choice as well. If you are not doing what you really love to do, um, pause, take a minute, pray about it. Find the things that will uh, give you that kind of joy, that satisfaction. And it's something out there, maybe something that gives you more financial rewards, but it also might be something that gives you less, but it will make you happy. Life is too short not to be doing things uh, that would make you happy. So what I want to turn to next is the idea of what you've been able to do on the economic side. How do you develop tools, methods, metrics, whatever it is, to anticipate uh, changes in the economy? How do you know that your models uh, work well and will give the best result, the optimum result uh, from especially monetary policy that you could possibly expect? How does that improve the lives of everybody, and how do you actually develop the metrics uh, to make those proposals or recommendations to policymakers? The notion that you can anticipate uh, developments in the economy goes back oh, well over centuries. Um, back Business cycles, ups and downs and fluctuations go all the way back hundreds of years. And they were studied very seriously in the 19th century by quite a number of people. The Treasury wanted something that it could use and it could look at and it, that's where the leading indicators were born. The idea of the leading indicators would be that, first of all, it would be relatively easy to calculate and simple to get, so you wouldn't have to have a great panoply of scholars studying a whole series of industries. Second, that the data were fairly readily available. And third, that you could select out some series which had some economic activities which had the property that they tended to move very early in the cycle. We call them the leading indicators. So, Professor, for the audience that has stayed with us and learned your background, I think you're now about to give the secret sauce of everything that you've learned over the many years and the core of why you have been so become so influential. The leading indicators. These are the things that you use and believe in 
to predict what's going to happen with the economy. Tell us about these leading indicators. But as a matter of fact, uh, there are three sets of indicators. There are the leading indicators, the coincident indicators, and the lagging indicators. Series that move early in the cycle, series that move contemporaneously with the cycle, and series that move late in the cycle. For example, in general, historically, what happens uh, to inventories and what happens to the quantity of money both tend to move early in the cycle and are both in leading indicators. What happens to unemployment tends to come late. Unemployment continues to go down until after the cyclical peak has been reached. It doesn't start to go up until after the trough has been reached. It's late. I mean, it doesn't start to go down until after the trough has been reached. So unemployment is one of the lagging indicators. So you have these three sets, and the idea was that the leading indicators would give you a uh, some idea that maybe there was trouble ahead. The coincident indicators would confirm it, and the lagging indicators would confirm it even more strongly. Well, there you have it, audience, the essence of a genius that has affected your life, your parents' life, and will affect your children's life because of the theories and the ideas that he brought forth around economic policy and monetary policy in particular. He grew up as a first-generation immigrant. He focused on education. His parents were hardworking, and his parents... Um, encouraged him without even knowing where he might go or what he might do. He was obviously gifted from birth with an enormous um, talent for economics and mathematics and an elite a brain that helped him to form his ideas. And then, as he says, by happenstance, by chance, I prefer to think of it as Providence stepped in and encouraged him along the way and gave him contacts and opportunities that only he could fully appreciate at the end of the day how it affected his life and how he was able to be a voice in our governmental policy and our economic theories. And the contacts he made uh, gave us a great person who was able to explain himself and influence policy that has a beneficial effect uh, to you and to me. So I hope you've enjoyed sort of this profile, this background on how an ordinary person can grow and become extraordinary in his life by taking advantage of the opportunities in front of him and the hard work. So join us again next week, and we'll bring more interesting analysis and policies and individuals and look back in the past and see if the proposals and the predictions of people who were around at the time actually uh, came true or whether they were just part of that elite population that doesn't know what they're doing and ultimately gets us in trouble. Let's find the the real heroes of our society are really a uh, continuation of the wisdom of our founding fathers. And we'll try to do that week on week here at Healthcare Insight. Talk to you later. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.